All right. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Welcome to the services. Um, we've been in a series the last uh, number of weeks since most of this calendar year. We've been doing a sermon series through, uh, through the Bible, starting to kind of go through the Bible. The word Bible, I said, I've said this many times, the word Bible means the books. Um, the, um, the books is um, because the Bible is not one book, it's really a collection of books. Um, it's actually two collections of books. The first collection is called the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. The second collection is the Christian Scriptures or the New Testament. Put together, we call it the Bible or the books. And we've been studying, the, la- the last couple of weeks, we've been studying Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We're going to wrap that up. This will be our third talk in these chapters. And some of you might be thinking, Arlen, if you're still three weeks into just the first 11 chapters, we'll be doing our Bible series for the next five years, right, to get through all of this. But that's the reason we're spending so much time in Genesis 1 through 11 is there's a lot lot of human history covered in these chapters. Lots of it, right? Even though there's not much writing about it. So we've spent some time in here. And, um, and I've said this all along. I'll say it again right now. These are difficult chapters. I said, this, I said this earlier in the service. I'll say it again now. These are difficult chapters. They just are. Because they cover such a large portion. Right? Moses, is, Moses is writing down uh, this uh, history, not just of the people that he helped lead out of slavery and their story, but their past and their, their ancestors from hundreds of years earlier. No one was alive at that point. And then this ancient history way before then, it's hard. And he's writing all of this history down in 11 short chapters. And people debate, some of the biggest debates in the world happen from these 11 chapters of Genesis. And trust me, I, I was reminded of this just a little bit ago. I hate teaching from these chapters because I'm going to hear about it. <laughs> it's just how it goes. Because we're covering... Everyone's got an opinions about how this is supposed to go. We none of us were there. It's 11 chapters of ancient, ancient world history. And so, you know, we take what we have in the Bible, we present it, we offer, we offer um, some takes on it, and we acknowledge that there's room for debate. Christians can debate things like, you know, I'm not talking about atheists, I'm talking about believers can debate. Is you know, Genesis 1-1 literal or is it figurative? Was God create the world in six literal days 6,000 years ago or did he do it over a long period of time and that is just poetry, a figurative telling of what God did over a longer time that jives with some people's scientific understandings. Or was it literal? And boy, I'll tell you, the opinions are strong. And you can find that about everything in these early chapters, but again, none of us were there, so we're trying to sort them out. And I thought week one, I tried to tell you the best thing we could all do is not have a dogmatic approach, but have some grace in these things towards each other. People can, can agree with us on Jesus and on the gospel and, and, and have some different opinions about certain things, including the most ancient of times. And we have to have that or we're going to get anywhere. And so that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. Now, today we're going to wrap these chapters up and I'll be glad to move on. But I want us to wrap up today. And last week, we didn't really get into anything too controversial. But we did get into, um, someone asked a question after church. It was Ethan Curtis. He asked a question after the service. Because um, I was reading about how Cain and Abel, the kids of Adam and Eve in the Bible story, uh, Cain killed his brother Abel, then he runs off. And then they have another son named Seth. And then Seth gets married and has kids. And Ethan's like, hey, I have a question. Where did Seth get his wife from? Right? That's a good question. And uh, the, uh, the normal question is, where did Cain get his wife from? Because Cain was married. And if you read Genesis 4, it has the genealogies of Cain listed right there. Genesis 5, the genealogies listed of Seth. There's all these genealogies. Where did they get their wives from? And I was going to give this really long answer, but I have a lot to cover today, as you're going to find out. So um, because of that, just the simple, simple answer I can give you is, um, you know, as you read the Bible, they apparently married their sisters. That's just how it was. 
And who else is there to marry? Now, if you believe in a different view about there being other humans before then and Genesis being a figurative example of a group of humans, then you can have a different take. But the biblical literal narrative would indicate that they, met, they married their sisters. Ew. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. Gross. If you have brothers or sisters, you know what I'm talking about. But in, our def- in their defense, there wasn't a lot of choices going on back then, okay? Like the family tree had one branch. You know, what do you do with that? So um, basically, when you look at this, um, obviously, and, and, and we know that there's health reasons why you don't do that. That's usually illegal or it's not right because, you know, people marry their siblings or close relatives and you have movies like The Hills Have Eyes coming out from that, you know? I mean, it's just really bad news, right? And so, but in ancient times, I mean, it, it, the biblical record would indicate that with the fall of man and sin, there wasn't all the deformities and the defections that could happen over time, over a long period of time. That things have gotten worse. And then as people grow and there's more genetic defects and genomic issues in our DNA, people who have the same family line of, of gene, geno, genomic issues marry each other. There's likely their kids are going to have deformities. But that probably wasn't always as severe from the beginning before all the all the. Things got passed down through time. Probably was less physically unhealthy. Still gross. But again, what were you going to do? So that's why in Adam and Eve's story, you have these boys probably marrying sisters. I mean, it says Adam and Eve had a whole bunch of sons and daughters that are not named. So that would be the, the take. Now, the other case, um, that later on in the story of Noah, you see them getting off the boat, you have some cousins you have cousins getting married at that point. That's all, that's all they had to choose from. And even in Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, uh, Jacob's day, you have people marrying cousins and later on in Genesis. But here's the interesting thing. By the time that Moses arrives and helps lead the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, he, he's now codifying their new laws. They were slaves. They were illiterate. They were, they were in prison. You know, they didn't have, they were, they're now free. And as he's forming a nation of people, and as he begins to codify their laws, one of the laws he gives them is that you're no longer allowed to marry close relatives. Bravo, Moses, bravo, Moses, okay? And again, why? Well, first of all, because, ew, but second of all, because of health reasons. Did you know that a lot of the laws that Moses gave to the early nation of Israel were health-related laws? They were. They were dietary laws, food prep, and all the, the ancient technology. Think about that. They were food. They were dietary laws. They were laws of cleanliness. They were laws that if you had an outbreak that could be disease, how you had to handle that. They were laws of sexual behavior to limit sexual diseases, including the, the problems that could come down the line from marrying someone too close and relative to you. So there was a lot of that given just to protect the people. But back in this day, it was what it was. Just be glad you didn't live back then, okay? That's all I'm saying. Now, Today we're going to focus largely on the Great Flood and then briefly on uh, one last story in these chapters before we move on past these ancient, ancient times. The Great Flood. When we talk about the Great Flood, um, there's really, there's hardly any real debate that there was a Great, there was a great Flood. You can debate how it happened. You know, the biblical account, the, the, if you, you take it literally, it happened what, five plus thousand years ago with a man named Noah being the survivor and God sent the flood for the reasons mentioned that we're going to read. But there's other, civil, there's other ancient civilizations that have their own stories. Sometimes people who defend um, a young earth creation view will defend, you know, that the Bible, you know, these other flood narratives back up that there was a great flood, which is really not in doubt. A lot of ancient civilizations have a story about a flood. Their details vary. Who survived? Why God sent the flood varies in their ancient stories. Who survived the flood varies. Like, for example, some, there's a, one ancient uh, civilization account of the flood that says that God destroyed the world because he was... It was too noisy. (laughs) 
Like he's like, get off my lawn, you know. And he's young, so that's, that's one. And some people have a kind of sermon, guy named Jason or somebody else, you know, surviving the flood because he was warned by God and he gets his family and some animals into a boat. And so you have all these different accounts besides the, besides the Hebrew scripture accounts that we read in Genesis. And then you also have people who dismiss all those accounts. There are people who are, you know, scientifically minded who say all of that is nonsense. Those are all those are not flood narratives, those are flood myths. And I don't believe any of those stories. They believe the world being very, very old, millions of years old, had ice ages and glacial periods. In fact, uh, just studying this a lot the last couple of weeks, the, the, a lot of scientists believe that the, the more, most recent glacial period could have happened 10,000 years ago. And that would have caused a worldwide flood in their opinion. So even people who are skeptical and different view of viewing the world have a 10,000-year-old flood. The Bible, the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures give us about a 5,000-year-old flood. And then there's other accounts. So there's really not a much doubt that a flood happened. The only question is, how did it happen? Did it happen the way that Genesis said it happened, which many of us are like, yes, it did? Or is this some kind of figurative story? You can debate that all you want to, and I won't make any of you happy anyhow. So here's the deal. Um, what I want to say today is I'm not going to talk a lot about the flood. I'm not going to talk a lot about the flood. Because most of us know about the flood. Here's what I know about this room. We have people all over their faith journeys in our church, watching online and in person. And I'm thankful for that. I am so thankful for that being the case for Lighthouse. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. We have people here who you're, you're skeptical and you're not sure. You're maybe leaning in a little bit. We have people who you are a believer now, but you're a new believer and it's all new to you. We have people who are been saved a long time and you believe it's all just as it's written in the Bible. Not really because you pick and choose, but you don't, you don't think of it in those terms. But you believe most of it when it's convenient. And then we have people who You've been saved a long time and you're kind of skeptical now. You've kind of wondered and began to doubt things. And we have people who are just young, growing up and starting to think. So we're all over the place in our faith journeys. But one thing I know is that all of us in this room have heard the story of Noah and the flood in the, in the Bible. I've just I've talked to enough of us to know that. We've heard the story. We may not know all the details, but we know the narrative. And if you want to read more of that, I'm going to encourage you to read Genesis 6 through 8 in their entireties, because I'll give you all the juicy, salacious details of everyone drowning. It's good times. But what I want to spend time doing today is discussing something different. I want to discuss why... The flood happened according to the Hebrew scriptures, according to Genesis. Why did God send a flood in this account? And this is going to be a little bit of an interesting ride. In fact, this is going to be something I'm going to do because probably this is something that many of us have never thought through very much. And so I'm going to challenge some of our ideas and present some, maybe some of you are going to be like, yes, that's how it was. And others are going to be like, really? So we're going to have a, have a fun time talking about why the flood. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, it says this. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. Quick pause. If you were to read the previous chapter, that makes sense. The previous chapter is kind of a list of what they call genealogical records. You know, they had these kids, and they had these kids, and not everyone's named, but a certain you know, family line is named to bring us to certain people they want us to remember. A lineage is named, and these genealogies are kept. And by the way, I, I almost didn't say this last service, but Moses is writing all this stuff down you know, a long time later, and people wonder, how did, he ha- how, how did you have all these stories? And you can debate what inspiration it was all about. But ultimately, um, a, a very popular view is that people in ancient times would carve a name out of their ancestor on like a rod or a staff with a symbol, and that symbol meant a name. And you keep adding more symbols for more names and keep your genealogical records going that way, 
if you get several rods, you know. And, and, um, and that was one way even when people who were illiterate could know their lineage. And, of course, they passed on their stories orally. And, and Moses is putting all of this on paper for these, you know, this new nation of people to come out of slavery, the Israelites. But um, you have these genealogies in, in Genesis 5. All these people being born to Adam and Eve and their descendants and their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and their great-great, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, in Genesis 6.1, it says the people began to multiply in the earth and daughters were born to them. Verse 2 says, the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any as they wanted as their wives. Now, what in the world does that mean? That is a really weird phrase. The sons of God saw these, these, these daughters of men, as some translations say it, the daughters of men, which is what verse 1 also says. Sons of God married these daughters of men, these beautiful daughters. What could that mean? So people have tried to theorize on that, and I'm going to spend a little time doing that today. The three major thoughts all have question marks to them. One thought is that they're saying that the descendants of Cain, the bad son who ran away, was sent away, the, the descendants of Adam's good kid, Seth now, because Abel's dead, they married each other and they intermarried and, you know, that's what it's referring to. But that makes no sense. Because in the story, the daughters of men, these beautiful daughters, are the descendants of, chronologically from chapter 5, are the descendants of Adam and the quote-unquote good line. Which would mean that you're calling the sons of Cain the, the sons of God. Which kind of doesn't really make sense in any theological sense at all. Another popular view some people have, is that it's referring to the sons of God are people of faith, people of faith in a coming Messiah who believe in my faith they are sons of God. That's a view. And they're basing that upon in the New Testament when Jesus shows up, uh, uh, well, 1,500 years after Moses writes it, but way after this happens, thousands and thousands of years after this happens, when Jesus shows up, he begins to talk to people about being born again by faith, being born into God's family. He talks about, um, you know, John, the disciple, writes as many as believed him and received him. They become the sons of God or children of God. And so that's their take. But again, there's a problem with that theory. For one, you're, you're making a case that the people, there's two conscious people, the sons of God and the daughters of men, and the, the descendants of Adam are these daughters of men. So who, then they're not the ones who are the believers. So who are the, are the sons of God? It doesn't make sense. Also, the other problem with that theory is there is zero precedent, zero precedent for anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures for people to refer to people of faith as being sons of God. That, is, that happens nowhere in the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, it is not until the Hebrew scriptures are completely written, all the writings, even the ones that aren't even in the book, are all done being written, and thousands of years passed, and four centuries of silence happens, and then Jesus shows up a long time after, and he introduces the idea of being sons of God by faith was never anywhere in the Hebrew writings. A lot of the Hebrew people don't even accept Christianity. They reject the New Testament as, as illegitimate. But their Hebrew writings, their ancient Hebrew writings, have no, common, no place for that kind of talk. Jesus introduces this concept. Even the religious leaders of Jesus' day couldn't understand born again and sons of God. He was bringing a concept to them that they didn't quantify. My point being that when the Hebrew scriptures, that doesn't even make sense. So what could it possibly mean? Well, I'm going to make it more confusing before I offer you a third explanation, which also might be unsatisfactory, but here we go. But let's look at verse 4, first of all. Verse 4 says this. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and the famous warriors of ancient times. Now, again, 
what are these sons of God having intercourse with these women, the daughters of men, versus the giants? It makes no sense. So here's the, another prevailing theory. I'm going to spend a little time on here because it's fun and I'm going to nerd out. Um, that's something that you can say, oh, cool, or I reject that. Who cares? But every single time the phrase, the sons of God, is used in the Hebrew scriptures. It's only used three times in the Hebrew. Again, in the New Testament, it's a whole other story. But in the ancient Hebrew times, it was only used three other times in the scriptures. And they're all found in the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, and Job 38, 7 are the only other times the Hebrew word is translated from sons of, sons of God. It's the only time it's used. And in all three of those incidences, it's referring to angels or angelic beings in every single time. That's the consensus translation. The sons of God were angels appearing before God's courts and, and so on. And so on. So you can read it, study it for yourself, take a picture. So the theory has to be that either Genesis 6 is the one time that phrase is used meaning something different or it's consistent. But that's kind of weird, isn't it? You know, you have fallen, we know there's angels on earth, there's fallen angels. We saw last week in the fall that after Lucifer fell and took a bunch of angels in the fall with him, that you know, he was there to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden to sin. So you have, you know, you know the, the spiritual presence on earth. But could that be what this means in Genesis 6? Well, let me throw you another curveball that will mix this up. Let's go over to our New Testaments. If you get your Bibles with you, feel free to turn here if you want to. In the book of Jude. Jude, by the way, in case you don't know, is one of the last books of the New Testament. It's right before the book of Revelation. And in Jude, he says something very interesting that I want to point out and then explain it to you. Jude chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. Now, before I read the prophecy, he's talking about these people he's prophesying about. Who's doing the prophecy? Jude says that Enoch does it. Who's Enoch? He's the seventh generation from Adam in the biblical genealogies. He's actually the great-grandfather of Noah in the genealogical record. So you kind of know who Enoch is now? If you know the Bible real well, you know that he, he just kind of disappeared, didn't really have a death story. He just kind of, God took him or something. It's really weird. But Enoch, Jude says, seventh generation from Adam, Noah's great-grandfather, prophesied about these people. Here's what Enoch said. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things that they have done and for all the insults that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, if, you've been, if, you are, if you're very new to faith and you're like my head spinning, don't worry. Just hang back and let it, the right things will soak in. But if you've been in this a long time, you might be thinking, Arlen, got a question. I have read the book of Genesis where Enoch is talked about, and he never says any such thing in Genesis. Never there. Anytime in the Christian scriptures when they quote the Hebrew scriptures, you can go back to the Hebrew scriptures and find the writing. But here's Jude saying Enoch said something, and there's not, in Genesis, there's this much said about Enoch. So where's that? Well, here's what you ought to know. Jude is quoting from another book that's not in the scripture canon right here. He's quoting from a book called the Book of Enoch. Now, i got to make this plain. This is, well, we're going to get in a deep space here. But um, there are a lot of other writings, both in the ancient Hebrew writings and in Christian writings, that didn't make the canon of what we call the scriptures today. 
And that was not always fluid. You need to understand this. There, in, in way back through the Hebrew writings, even after Jesus was here for several hundred years, people were debating which of the ancient Hebrew writings should be canonized in the Hebrew scriptures and which should be on the outside, which should be canonized in the Christian scriptures, which should be outside. Some things were in, some things were later taken out, some things were later added in. It was a fluid thing. Even a few hundred years ago in the Reformation years, these debates were still going on. Most of us don't think about these. We don't even care. As American Christians, we just take what we got and we just don't think about this. But there's a lot of extra writings that are not in the Bible. And one of these extra writings is called the Book of Enoch. And it's been around a long, long time. It's ancient writings from the Hebrew times. Um, it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. For crying out loud, Jude quotes from it. In fact, the verse on the screen right there, if you want to go home and study it for yourself, you'd have to go home and you can download, you can read the book of Enoch. It's still out there. And Jude is literally quoting from book of Enoch chapter 1 and verse 9. That's a direct quote from Enoch chapter 1 verse 9. So why is Jude quoting from this book? Some people would argue that the reason that's not included in the scripture canon is because they think that someone else authored it. It was pseudographical. Others argue it's not, but it's apocryphal. Some people think he, someone else wrote it later in Edict's name. But here's the weird part. Jude, in your New Testament, Jude believed that Enoch wrote it. That's why he quotes it as being from Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Which either means that Jude is wrong, which brings up a whole big issue for some Bible uh, explainers, or Jude was right, and this is a very ancient book from before Noah. Right? You've got to figure that out yourself. But, but Jude quotes the book of Enoch. Now, if you were to read the book of Enoch, I will tell you something about it, as I've read it. There are parts, it's kind of long, parts of it are really cool and interesting, and parts of it are boring. Kind of like the Bible. There are parts that are very interesting. And if I can say there's parts that are not so much. Now, if you're a big nerd, it's all interesting, pastor. Okay, good for you. God bless you. But here's how it is, okay? So, I'm going to tell you, we're going to look at some things that, Jude, that Enoch wrote since Jude's quoting him, because Enoch writes about the flood. The book of Enoch writes about the flood. In fact, the first many chapters of the book of Enoch deal with a section that is subtitled by us. Its subtitle is The Watchers. Ooh, The Watchers. Does that sound spooky? What are The Watchers? It's dealing with angels. Book of Enoch, let's read a few verses. Chapter 6 and verse 1 says this. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. That's a direct mirror quote from Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. Verse 2, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Now, this is interesting. This is this, almost a direct quote from Genesis 6-2, but instead of translating it sons of God, they say angels, which again, sons of God in every Old Testament reference always meant angels anyhow. So they're kind of saying the same thing. But they're giving a little more detail here. Now, take it for what it's worth. The rest of Enoch chapter 6, from that point on, talks about these angels and that there was hierarchies of angels, both amongst the holy angels and the fallen angels. They had leaders like Lucifer and others by name, and Enoch lists some of the names, and some of the names you know if you've been around church a while. Michael is mentioned, Gabriel's mentioned among the holy angels, but some other ones are mentioned that we've never heard of before. It doesn't matter if they're real or not, I'm just telling you what the book says. And then in chapter 7, he expands further on the flood story that we're reading in Genesis 6. 
Book of Enoch, chapter 7, verse 1, all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, referring to the angels here now, the fallen ones, took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and defile themselves with them and taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. Now, I'm gonna pause here again and say this. Some of us might quickly think, Arlen, I thought in the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures, that Jesus was once asked about people Get, you know, in heaven with marriage. And Jesus said that in heaven, there's no marrying or given in marriage, but it would be like the angels in heaven, which is a very staple point. Although it doesn't say, Jesus does not say that the angels were sexless there. He just says that there's no institution of marriage there in that sense. Um, and nor does it indicate how they were in the fall. I'm not making, a, I'm making no case here. I'm just presenting to you some interesting theories about what's going on in Genesis 6. Take it for what it's worth. But, it says that these angels came and they uh, met with, they took wives amongst the daughters of men. Verse two, they became pregnant. They bare great giants whose height was 3,000 L's. I don't know what an L is, to be 3,000 L's tall. Don't know what an L, I thought it was a, like a Stranger Things character or something, I don't know. But anyhow, um, uh, who consumed all the acquisitions of men and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. So in other words, these giants were born, they consumed all that man was doing. Then they turned around, they began to consume the men. These giants then, uh, verse number five, began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And that's all we'll read. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what happens next without reading it for sake of time. What happens next is that God is being long-suffering, as Peter says, and he puts up, but finally he says, enough's enough. He sees the devastation. He takes the angels out of the, the, the world that they're running amok in, and he puts them in prison. He imprisons these spirits. He locks them away. And he says, I'm gonna deal with you guys in a moment here, but he says to the earth that the world had become so wicked, the man had become so continuously evil, the book of Enoch says, that God says, I'm gonna destroy the, the I'm gonna judge the world with a flood as well. I'm going to deal with the angels here. I'm going to deal with the world with a flood here. And he tells somebody called the son of Lamech to build a boat to prepare for a flood. Well, guess who the son of Lamech is? It's Noah. And he does, and that's the story in the writing. Now, the book, I don't care what you think about the book of Enoch. I think you probably ought to read it because even the people who decided to keep books like Enoch and like the Maccabees and like... Uh, the book is of, you know, all the, all, there's tons of extra writings. People who kept a lot of these writings out of the scripture canon, if you read what they wrote about why they kept them out, a lot of people said, we should read them. We should read books like those because, in this, not my words, but theirs, they said, even though we're not including them in the canon, we believe that they're important for wisdom and for theological understanding. Their words, not mine. So, so their view is, read these things to understand our theology better. Now, so you should at least give them a read at some point in your life. I've been doing that for the last few months. It's been fun to just explore. But anyhow, regardless of what you do with the book of Enoch, you got to ask yourself, what is God talking about in Genesis? It's really a weird passage. And I'm going to give you one more nerd thing, but I'm not going to expound on it too long. If you want to go next level study on this thing and you want some extra reading, besides going home and reading Enoch and Genesis again, I'm going to give you four verses on the screen. Take a picture of these or write these down and read these. And then later on, you can text or email me. We can have a conversation and have fun together. I like to geek out. 
But it's Jude chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, and 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. Now, what are these verses, real quickly, without getting deep? 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 refers to God coming down and separating these spears and imprisoning them and then preaching to them in prison while he judges the earth with a flood. Referring to Noah's time. Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5 talk about the angels who sinned against God in the ancient times in their holy habitation, and it links the idea with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual immorality there? Well, it's interesting when you read the context and the link between the angels that sinned against holy times and the sins in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was the sins in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, there's, Ezekiel tells us several, but, but the, the, the story is, is that God has sent a couple angels down, uh, was visited Abraham, these angels went on from Abraham to visit the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to see if it, how wicked it was. And if it was, they were going to destroy it, but they're going to rescue Abraham's nephew, Lot. And when the angels got to Sodom, the men of the city tried to rape them, which is a vile, rape is an is a, a, a atrocity and evil against our people. Not just to rape these guys, but these were angelic beings. Interesting connection that these passages make in that story. Don't overlook that. And then 2 Peter 3 talks about... Um, how that God is long-suffering as he was in the times of the flood. So if you want to nerd out deeper, I gave you some extra work. And if you just got lost in the last 15 minutes and you're bored, let's bring it back to the flood, okay? All right. Back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Let's read the story together. Then the people, this is the, this is the Old Testament now, this is the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis 6-1. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women, and they took any as they wanted as their wives. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. Let's talk about that verse right there. First of all, kind of in conjunction with what the book of Enoch says, God's dealing with two different groups of people, the spirits and then also the, the um, humans. And he says here in this verse, I'm going to make their lifespan me no more than 120 years. That's an interesting statement. Some people have interpreted that to mean that God says he's going to judge the earth with a flood in 120 years. But that's not the good translation of what this means. This is a, this is a good translation right here. Elsewhere, it tells us that God gave about 100 years to Noah after he appeared to him before the flood happened. But in this passage, he's saying, I'm going to shorten the human life. Because prior to the flood, people lived a whole lot longer. Did you know that? People were living for eight or 900 years long in the early scriptures, according to the Bible. If you believe what it's written, living for eight or 900 years long. Now, why? There's a lot of theories as to why. The biblical literalist theory, that many of you hold, especially if you have a, a literal Genesis 1-1 young earth creation view, is that, that the world, people live longer because of the environment the world lived in, the ecological system of the world that people were living in. That basically, the environment was conducive to longer life after the fall, but before the flood. And one theory goes that the world had a water, there was a lot of water on the earth. The world's 75% water today. But above the earth, there was another layer of water canopy, is, is the theory. And this is something that is not unheard of to have something outside of, this, of our immediate stratosphere. Two of our planets in our solar system uh, have a ring around them of gases. And they just recently, science found, um, just, just recently I was reading some science articles that talked about finding a planet in our galaxy far away that has a, 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 a ring of ice around it. So some people's theory is that there's a water canopy outside of the earth. And whatever you believe about that, ultimately, 
the, somehow the environment was conducive to a longer life before the flood. When that got broken up, not only did it destroy the world as it was, but it also created a different environment ecologically and people's lifespans got shorter. There's no doubt there was a great flood. This is just the Bible version of that story. Now, here's what I want to say. As we read this, you'll see that Noah gets on the boat at like 600 years of age. But he starts living a shorter life after the flood. His kids live shorter, and his kids live shorter, and life can get shorter till under 120 years. If for the last couple thousand years, people lived a lot shorter than 120 years. What's the average lifespan in the 70s for a long time now? People now are starting to live older again. Have you noticed that? People are starting to live a little older. Modern medicine's getting better. There's some, supposedly some breakthroughs on the, on the brink of happening in modern medicine that could maybe extend life a lot longer in the future. Maybe we'll see if that works out or not. But it's interesting that about three weeks ago, the oldest person in the world died. They lived in another country. It was a woman. She was 119 years old. And now the new oldest person in the world lives in the United States, also a woman. She's 115 years old currently. It's the oldest person, almost 116. And so there's a few people living near, but not much past that. Maybe that will change. They're never guys. They're always the girls living longer. You know, those guys, we go first, right? Just get rid of those idiots and uh, let the women have a good time for a change, you know? So anyhow, um, but this is a view that after the flood, God didn't only re do the great reset, if I could use that word dangerously. He didn't only give a great flood to the earth, but he also shortened human lifespan. Let's keep reading here. Verse four, Genesis 6, four. In those days and for some time after, Giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Again, take what you want from that verse. I just try to make some sense of it with you, but there's so many theories. Verse five. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. This is the same thing that the book of Enoch says, that the humans were so messed up. Everyone was just constantly very wicked. Verse number six, so the Lord was sorry that he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. God was having what we call creator's remorse, if that's a, a thing, okay? Like, um, in other words, um, you ever, in Genesis 1, when God made everything, he saw, he saw that it was good. He saw that it was very good. In Genesis 6, he saw that it was bad. It was very bad. And he's going through this process that you've probably been through in your life, haven't you? Where you did something that you were proud of, and later on you regretted it, or you thought it wasn't so good after all. And God's like, I'm so, I don't know about these people. What did I do? Verse number seven says this, And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry on the ground, even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry that I ever made them. Whew, here goes. But look at verse 8. But Noah found favor with the Lord. If you keep reading further, it says that Noah was a righteous man who trusted God. He was a man of faith. And God noticed that and found favor. So, so if you were to read, and we're not going to get into a lot of these details because many of you know the story, but really quickly, in Genesis 6 through 8, God tells Noah, look, you, you, you have a heart for me and you're paying, you're paying attention in this wicked world. I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to spare you and your family. Build this large boat Get ready and warn the people while you're building it. They won't listen, but try to warn them anyhow. And so Noah does that. Noah and his wife have three sons. Their three sons have wives. And so the eight of them begin to prepare this big boat. 
And while they're building it, when they're not building it because they're punched out for union hours or whatever, taking a break, they would warn the people, they'd warn the people, hey, God's gonna send a flood. And everyone would laugh at them and say, that's nonsense. But they said, oh yes, it's coming. And eventually they finished the boat and eventually they got on the boat, Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, and a bunch of animals. They shut the door, God seals the door and then the whole thing breaks loose. And you have a flood. And the biblical account is that the, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, water came down. And at the end of that time, it stayed very high above the highest mountain peak for about 150 days, I want to say, or whatever, for a long time. And everything changed. The world was re, kind of reset. People lived shorter lives from that point on, as I said earlier, and they eventually landed the boat. Read it for yourselves this week, Genesis 6 through 8. Meanwhile, we get to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9 is the story of Noah's family after the flood. Now check this out. I know what you're thinking. Noah and his family get off the boat and they're like, we've learned our lesson. Unlike Adam and Eve who messed everything up and they're rotten kids, we're going to be awesome people. It doesn't work out that way. Before any of them are dead and gone, there's so much drunkenness. And you know how drunkenness can lead to what did I, what did, what, what did I do and bad things. And in the middle of all that, at some point, there was sexual immorality committed within the family that was very grotesque and horrible. And that led into a curse being given and a family division happening. And so by the time Genesis 9 is done, you have just like really crazy stuff happening. So it's already a mess all over again, right? Yay. But one thing that God says in Genesis 9 is this, I will never again destroy the world with a flood. He makes a covenant or a promise to mankind that there'll never be a global flood. There might be a flash flood or a regional flood, but there's never going to be a global flood again, right? Because I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. And he gave a promise. He said, whenever you see the rainbow in the sky, that rainbow is a visual reminder to humanity that never again will the entire world be destroyed by a flood like it happened in ancient times. Now, the biblical record seems to indicate that the world will end one day, and it will end probably by being destroyed by fire. Maybe that's nuclear war. I don't know. But never a flood. And the rainbow is a promise from God that he will never do that again, according to the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, one other thing God said to Noah and his kids in Noah chapter nine, Genesis 9-7. He says, now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. So you know what that means, right? Be fruitful and multiply means have lots and lots of babies. Go for it. Repopulate the earth means go have babies and spread around and fill the place up and take care of this planet I put you on. Did they do that? Did they listen to what God told them to do? Why start now? So Genesis 9 ends and Genesis chapter 10 begins with more genealogical records of people obeying the first half and having lots of babies and being fruitful and multiplying. But Genesis chapter 11 says that all these people weren't exactly refilling the earth. Read the story in Genesis chapter 11 verse 1. It says, At one time all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. Verse 4, Then they said, Come and let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. So they're very, you know, we have no idea the technology that may have existed back then. In recent millennia, that hasn't been great, but who knows what kind of technology the unified world had. But ultimately, they built what was at that time a super city. And at the center of the city was a tower 
that was just epic. And this place was so conducive that they said, let's all just live right here and not let ourselves be scattered all over the world, even though God told them, go grow and then scatter. And so in verse five, it says this, but the Lord came down and looked at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Now that's a great statement on the power of unity right there. But people are united and they're together. Boy, that, that works in churches that are cohesive and, and, and healthy. That works in faith systems. That works in businesses and workplaces. That works in countries. Boy, we see in our country all the division in our country, how hard it is to get anywhere when no one trusts anybody. Unity is powerful. But the idea is to be united about the right thing. Of course, the problem with that today is everyone thinks that their thing is the only right thing, so there's no unity. But in this case, they were united to not obey what God said to do, which is to scatter all over the earth. And so God looks down and says in verse 7, he says, Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world. They stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. And again, you take what you want to from Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Okay, we spent three weeks on this. But here's what I want to say. That story right there reminds me a little bit of the Christian scriptures. Remember when Jesus walked the earth and after he died and rose again, he told his followers to go make spiritual babies, to go preach the gospel to people and baptize them and to spread the gospel to the entire world, right? Did the curly church obey Jesus? No. They spread the gospel. People were born again. The church grew by thousands and thousands, but they all stayed at Jerusalem, right? So what did God do? He sent persecution to the early church and it caused them to scatter. No one likes persecution, but God had to use it as a tool to get them to do what he told them to do, to scatter, to bring the message of the gospel to the whole world. And that's a little bit like we see here in a very different way. God says, be fruitful, multiply, go fill the earth. And they're like, we're staying here. And God's like, I'm gonna scatter you because you don't wanna go. Now, and we have, you know, that's where you have people, and we have a globe full of people that eventually got found everywhere, right? All the places you go today from north to south to east to west, there are people, different languages. They, people couldn't understand. They couldn't work together. They got frustrated at their lack of communication ability. They'd find people that could speak their language. They would, they would, they would tribe up. They would scatter and move abroad and, and form new civilizations all over the place, land masses across the Western Hemisphere to the, what is the, our country today, to the South, to Africa, to the North and Europe, to the East, the Far East, people went everywhere. We didn't all find each other for a long time, but this is the story according to Genesis of how it all happened. Now, this is where we end our first 11 chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11 ends with the birth of little baby Abraham. That's another subject for another time. But these first 11 chapters are so difficult. I have toiled in preparing this series because there's so much time and there's so much controversy about how it is done. There's so much. I ask my wife, ask Anthony probably too, ask them how much toil and energy has gone into this because you can't talk about something this old. None of us, none of us were there. None of us were, I mean, some of you are pretty old, don't take me wrong, but none of us were that old. And so, you know, there's no way I can even talk about these chapters without making some crowd unhappy. I've been reminded of that too. You know, you either think, you know, you need to say, is this how it was? Bless God literally and yell and tell everyone and get out if they don't agree. Or you got to sit there and be skeptical as I am and, and offer that view. So it's easier to avoid these chapters than to talk about them. 
but here I am talking about them anyhow because I want to take us through the Bible. I want you to know the stories of creation. I want you to know the stories of the first people in the fall. I want you to know the story of the great flood. How did it all begin? How did it go wrong? Why, um, you know, why is life so short? Why are people so different? According to Genesis 1 through 11, that's how that worked out. Now, regardless of how you sort out this early ancient history and what your view is, and I'm sure I'll, you can let me know when you, if you want to, Whatever your view is, whether you believe it very literal or very figurative, whether you believe that literally in six days God created the world, six literal days 6,000 years ago, or you, or you, and you believe literally that sons of God means angels and these other New Testament, it was angels having intercourse with human women, and literally you believe that literally, or whether you're figurative, you believe that God poetically describes creation, that happened over millions of years, and God figuratively describes sin in the world in Genesis 6, or anything in between. That's up to you. you got to sort that out between you and God. I wasn't there, neither were you, but figure that out, read it, study it for yourself. Here's the deal. What we can all agree on, hopefully, today is this. We can all take a lesson that these 11 chapters teach us that I think speaks into our faith to this day. In fact, if I could say it, Moses, while writing these records down and listing these genealogies that they kept and writing these traditions down and these stories down in these short 11 chapters, was conveying to the children of Israel, freshly freed out of slavery, largely illiterate, trying to form a nation, he writes these stories down and preserves them. And as a lesson that we can take from these 11 chapters, regardless of how you interpret them, that is helpful today, and it has to do with our faith. Remember two weeks ago, I talked to you about faith in the book of Hebrews, which is talking in chapter 11 about the ancient people of, of old, and it explains what faith looks like in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it is impossible to please God without faith, it says. And then it describes what that faith looks like. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists, and he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Now, we don't have time to rehash that verse like we did two weeks ago. But quick summary, there's a couple great takeaways about what faith is on its foundational base level, a starting point. And that is that to believe that, number one, God exists, and number two, that God is love. And we've, we explain that in detail. That's the starting point. No matter where you are in faith journey, that's a starting place. There is a God, and he is there. And we told you to pray a simple prayer. Remember that prayer we taught you? That no matter where you are in your faith journey, whether you aren't even sure you believe or whether you've been around a long time but you're struggling with life, that you can always pray a simple prayer. God, I believe that you're there and I believe that you care. I believe that you're there, I believe that you care. That's the foundation of faith that Hebrews is talking about that we can take from these early books of Genesis or early chapters of Genesis. But I want to give you one more spin on that and then we're going to go home and that is this. That Genesis also shows us, Genesis 1 through 11 also shows us the same thing that this verse is showing us. That God is so powerful. And at the same time, God is so personal. That God is so powerful. And God is so, and we can all grab a hold of that no matter where we are. That He's powerful enough to make the entire world whether in six quick days or whether over a long period of time, either way, to make everything out of nothing is scientifically impossible. You can't replicate that. You can't create everything out of nothing. But here we are somehow. How did that happen? I don't know. God is so powerful as to make everything out of nothing. And yet, 
so personal as to have the first people and say, I'm gonna visit with you, and it's not good that you're alone. I'll make a companion to be with you. So powerful as that when the sin entered the world to step in and deal with the ramifications of sin and provide a plan of redemption, and yet so personal as to clothe those first people and take care of their personal needs. So powerful as to be able to deal with the sins of the world in Genesis 6, whatever that meant, and at the same time so personal as to identify Noah and his faith and spare his family. And it's not just Genesis, 6, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. It's, it's Moses' story. That God was so powerful in the Israelites in Egypt as slaves that God came down and judged the Egyptians for human slavery with severe plagues, parted the Red Sea because he's that powerful. And yet at the same time, he's so personal as to appear to little old Moses wandering the wilderness by himself watching sheep and talk to him through a burning bush. What in the world? And the lesson of these early chapters of Genesis is the lesson of all the Bible and it's the lesson of your life and my life if we're paying attention. That we have a maker, we have a God who is both powerful and personal at the same time. That's big. He's not like your best friend Gary who loves to listen to your stories and cares about you but has no power. He's powerless to fix your problems. He's not like some king or ruler that can wave his hand and write a law and fix all your problems but he's too big to know who you are and care about you. God is neither the king or your friend Gary. No offense to Gary. God is both powerful and personal. And I want you to think about that as we talk about these chapters of creation. Go out and look at the stars in the sky and see this galaxy above us and realize how little we are. In the little dot on earth, you couldn't even see our planet from those stars. And then you zoom into earth and realize you can't even see me on the planet. I'm a little spot in time and space. And it's overwhelming. And you think about that song that we sing. We say, I see the work of your hands. Galaxies spin in a heavenly dance. Oh God, all that you've done is so overwhelming. God is so powerful. And at the same exact time, he's so personal. The scriptures say that he knows the number of hairs that are on your head, which is harder for some of you than it is for others of you to know. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows, he knows every prayer you pray. The Bible says that every tear that you cry, he keeps them in a bottle and knows why each tear was shed. That the, the scripture, Jesus said that a bird can't fall from the sky without God noticing and you are more important to him than the birds. That what I'm trying to say today is that we serve a God. We have a God, a maker, who is so powerful and so personal. And I want that today to be a starting point on your faith journey, whether you've never had faith or whether you've walked away from it or whether you're struggling today. Let this be a place to say, God, if you're there, I believe that you're that powerful and that you're that personal. I believe that you're there and that you care, that you exist and that you're love. That can be a foundational point to build your life upon. Because my God, my God is so big. And God is so, so good.